Gospel of our Saviour Christ according to St. John, chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from me. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf, not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, TLDR, 
Too long did not read. Yes. Too long didn't read. <laughs> so, uh, there's one for car lovers, uh, which uh, goes with Porsche. Proof of rich, spoiled children having everything. Well, we can dream. And there's even one for McDonald. Making child diners order nuggets and large drinks. So, here's one that you may not have heard of before. And I came across it when I attended a, a webinar not so very long ago, which was hosted by uh, CPAS, the Church Pastoral Aid Society. And one of the things they were doing in that was reporting on an extensive research project that they carried out as to what is currently the mood across the culture in which we find ourselves. And the acronym was VUCA G. VUCA G. And what it stood for is that the way in which many, many people now are perceiving the mood around us is that it is volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and globalized. Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, globalized. Bukaji. Just to underscore that, last Saturday morning, I had to attend a cathedral board meeting, which was in a, a nice hotel, and I had to do that before coming in here for another reflective learning course. Anyway, they were telling us on the board about charities regulation, and one of the presentations was from the cathedral insurers, ecclesiastical. And the lady who was talking to us spoke of, have you ever heard of a black swan event? In the insurance industry, a black swan event is a crisis that typically happens once every 50 to 70 years. And the point she was making was that in the past three to four years, there have been as many as six black swan events. COVID, monkeypox, cost of living, war in Ukraine, refugees, industrial unrest. Press it. <laughs> For all of us, I think what these things suggest is a sense whereby we've never passed this way before. This is all new territory, unless we try to kid ourselves, the church is in no way exempt from any of this. And that's important for us to face into because, let's be honest, the church is the horse to which all of us here have hitched our wagons. Yes? And there's an impact from all of this in terms of what it's going to look like and feel like to be the church. So maybe the question that comes to us in the context of an end-of-year service, then, is this. Does the Christian faith really make sense of life in all the ways that we claim? I mean, when you look at it, objectively, 
really in the business of is trying to persuade people to worship someone who suffered a shameful, weak death. And we do that, do we not, as a body of believers who are marginalized. Wasn't that you know, the second most popular response in the recent UK census? The second response was no religion. And over 50% of Christian congregations in the UK reported having at most one child or young person, and for many of them, none at all. We're marginalized. We're persuading people to try and follow a weak savior on the basis of being weak. And the way we do that, ultimately, it's on the basis of words. Words. Words that we have from others, words that we speak ourselves. Christianity relies on the apparently weak words of apparently weak witnesses to an apparently weak and crucified Savior. How can we be sure that it actually is a sign of God being at work? Well, let me suggest that we can find an answer to that question in our gospel for today. So I don't know if you have a Bible or if you can find one on your phone, but it would be useful if you want to follow that you turn to John 17. And what we're going to see in these verses is that actually all of these weak vessels are none other than evidence that God is at work. In all of these ways, remarkably, this is how he has chosen to work out his plan in every generation. So, we read verses 1 to 11. I want to refer to the whole of chapter 17, which comes, of course, at the end of what's known in, in, in John's Gospel as the farewell discourse. So, it's been going on since chapter 13. And what Jesus has been doing... Is, is to try and prepare his disciples for what it will be like after he has gone. Following his departure. And here we are between the Ascension and Pentecost. He wants them to be sure that after he has gone physically, they will know that the work of God will continue. And so... As we come to chapter 17, we get this remarkable window into the prayer of Jesus, and he circles around these themes in ways that I think all of us ought to find reassuring. First of all, then, it seems to me in verses 1 to 5, we're being told, look, look again, look again, the message of the cross. Verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In John's Gospel, that motif of the hour, the time, it's a technical term for the death of Jesus. In chapter 2, the wedding in Cana, my time, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 12, as the gospel begins to shift its focus towards Jerusalem, now the hour has come. 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. In chapter 13, before he washes their feet, he says that he knew the time had come for him to leave the world. And yet, incredibly, incredibly, somehow, in that painful, ignominious death, there is going to be a revelation of God's glory. Look what he says. The hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Again in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, Father, by finishing the work you gave me to do. So now glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. Do you remember back in the, the book of Exodus? And there's a moment there where we're told that when the glory of God appeared in front of Moses, it was so overwhelming, it was so overpowering that Moses had to be hidden in a cleft of the rock. And yet, in this death of Jesus, the glory of God is going to be revealed in a way which everyone can see by faith. It's the polar opposite of what you would expect. We think glory of God, we think you know there should be a fanfare and lights and majesty. No, here it is. From the lips of Jesus, we find nowhere else than in his own death. It can only be apprehended by faith. And so as we come to the end of this year, as we remember that we're living in a world that is vukajee, <laughs> unstable, as we reflect on all the twists and turns of everything that may have happened over the course of the last few months, maybe the first and most important thing is to look again at the message Secondly, think again about those words in verses 6 to 19. The focus of the prayer moves uh, on to Jesus' disciples. And the thing that's striking here is how everything about who they are and what they're going to do, it's bound up with words. Listen, verse 6. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 8. The words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they received them, and know in truth that I came from you. Verse 14. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they do not belong to the world. Again in verse 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The key, the key to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ and the key to remaining faithful in following Jesus Christ comes from a willingness to receive his word. And the incredible thing is, think about this, that this word is so effective that it actually begins to transform 
those who receive it into the likeness of the one who spoke it. What do I mean? Well, how do we know what God is like? He has revealed himself in his nature to be glorious, to be one, to be holy. And listen again to how Jesus prays. It's precisely echoing those qualities. Verse 10. All mine are yours, yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. Verse 11. I'm no longer in the world. They are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one just as we are one. In verse 17, as we already saw, sanctify the Lord, make them holy according to your word. Cameron was reminding us yesterday, some of us, with your dissertation proposal <clears throat> about how words, the right words, can be formative. And it is so in keeping with our heritage as Anglicans from the prayer group. When we come together in morning prayer, it's to hear and receive his holy word proclaimed. When we gather around the Lord's table so that we might agree in the truth of thy holy word, in the litany for the people of God to have grace to receive God's word and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. It seems it seems so ineffectual. Just words. But as Paul says in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit is none other than the Word of God. Some of you, quite a number of you, over the next few months, will cross a threshold of ordination. Some as deacons, some as priests. You've so much to look forward to. And let me encourage you from this moment, not just to think of all the excitement and the buzz and everything, anticipate and cherish the moment within the ordination when you will be given a copy of the Bible. Yeah. Look again message of the cross. Think again about the power of the words. Finally, rejoice again with the people. The prayer again moves on from verse 20. The focus moves to all who will believe through the ministry of those disciples. And amazingly again, the same thing happens. That precisely those qualities of unity and holiness and glory will actually be made manifest in all who come to believe. Do you know, as we come to the end of this year, I think this is something through which the Lord really wants to speak to us. When it comes to the doing of ministry, it is so easy, 
so easy to fall into a kind of me as Messiah complex. <laughs> and, and, and to think, oh, I'm going to change the church. <laughs> but actually, within the purpose of God, it's the church that needs to change us more and more into the likeness of the one who is the Lord of the church. I love the story of the young Christian whose heart had grown cold. Prayer was dry, God was distant, and he went for counsel and advice to an elderly lady in the congregation, and she just listened as he poured out his heart. What's gone wrong? She said nothing. And it so happened they were sitting in front of an open fire. And after she heard what his problem was, she simply lifted a pair of tongs and took a coal out of the fire and set it on the heart. And she watched it. And of course, the coal started to change from red to gray to black. Heat started to diminish. And then after allowing that to happen, she just took the tongs and lifted the coal and put it back in the fire. And it was rekindled. It was reignited. That young believer knew exactly what the message was, to get back into the fellowship of the church. It was Luther who said, Alone at home in my own house there is no warmth or vigor, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart. In a world that is vubuji, unstable, complex, volatile, the Lord reminds us that there's still something precious given to us that we have to offer, that people are seeking to find. I thought of that at the midway point of this year, Christmas. Remember that? <laughs> the BBC Christmas schedule, from beginning to end, was a kind of litany of Charlie Mackesee. Did you notice that? And, and, and the book, that is still somewhere in the list of bestsellers about the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. All of the trailers were about the boy, the mole, the fox, the horse. And the reason why it's still in the bestseller list is because it's tapped into something that people find connects to where they're at. It's a simple story of discovering acceptance. Knowing friendship, feeling loved. Is that not something that we have to offer? So look again at the cross. Think again about the words. Rejoice again with the people. And if we can do those things, then when next we meet, <laughs> by the grace of God, he will have kept us. Speak into our lives. We simply pray now that 
perhaps this day the seed of your truth might find good soil.